It is 9.20 a.m. on a crisp Monday, January the 27th. I am sitting here in the Eisner Center for the Performing Arts at Denison University, Granville, Ohio. Uh, with me is a professor of theater at this institution, uh, Eleni Papaleonardos. Hello, thank you for being with us. Oh, gosh, Adam. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and we are here this week uh, to talk about... Um, you. <laughs> um, specifically to talk about um, the fact that you've led a fascinating life, um, at least in my opinion, and I thought you would be a very good introduction to season two of The Coffee Hour, and specifically we're here to talk about your experiences as someone who is bilingual, holds dual citizenship, uh, is a performer, is a person with dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things are correct that I've said, yes? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't misrepresent anything to start off with. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Um, I should point out to our listeners, uh, this is the first time we've actually had coffee on the coffee <laughs> hour. Um, so if you hear an occasional sipping, uh, it's just the coffee that Eleni was gracious enough to prepare for us. So, um... So I guess let's 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 not ado, um, <laughs> and let's just jump right in. You started out. You are currently a, a professor of theater, mm-hmm. and a member of the Columbus-based theater company Available Lights. Yeah. Um, what's your official title with Available Lights? Artistic director. And what does that entail? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. That is a title that does change depending on what other titles are along with it. So there are some companies where there's an artistic director and they also serve as the executive director. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would just be artistic director, right? And that's all the things. Um, uh, Matt is the founder of Available Light. Um, he was the original artistic director, the founder of the company. And now he's moved into um, the executive director role. Mm-hmm. So I'm the artistic director to his executive director. Interesting. So what does that entail? <laughs> um, yeah, that was the part, that was what you wanted to know. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of plays, I see a lot of plays, I talk to a lot of playwrights, mm-hmm. I um, I know a lot about um, plays and, and uh, playwrights and commissions work and um, commissioned work and uh, creating original work and my, a large part of my job is to think about um, where we want to take our season, where what is the artistic realm and interest of our theater company, and so I'm uh, once a month we get together as a company and we read plays that I've procured and mm-hmm. like oh this is a good one or this is really getting at this thing that uh, you know this company member really wanted to explore blah blah blah, so um so I put forth a lot of plays, um and then um part of my job is to make sure that there are opportunities within the season or so my little fridge went off um within the season um or making sure that that all the company members have a chance to explore their passion um that's the 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 artistic part (laughs) um and you yourself have uh have written a play um (laughs) a a one-woman show called stop sign language is that that's the title yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I laughed when you said written a play because I'm I'm married to a playwright mm-hmm. and I don't consider myself a playwright. I um, 
Uh, language and the written word is not the area in which I feel most comfortable. Mm-hmm. So playwright, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> but I know lots. Um, I, I created a piece. I devised a piece. So I created it, I think, by performance. I, I, I wrote the performance and created it um, as opposed to writing it on the page. I guess at the end of the day, you could call both forms. I mean, you can call both forms playwriting, but um, I was like, well, yes, okay, answered your question, sorry <laughs> um, about that. No, it's, it's quite all right. <laughs> um, Time myself to give shorter answers. No, it's okay, I like the longer answers, um, but in fact, I didn't ask the question. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask for, um, uh, for specifics, it is a, a one-woman show, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly, mm-hmm. um, and it's about, uh, it's fairly autobiographical, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the nature of stop sign language? So, um, so there's some parentheticals inside of that title. Mm-hmm. It's stop sign, parenthetical language. I developed an obsession with the stop sign, with the octagon. Oh. Um, so, oh, this is, this is a visual thing, so I'll have to explain it, because, uh, um, radio. Uh, so, as a dyslexic, okay. um, one of the, the thing that still will get me all the time, even after all the, the work I've done, and even being, you know, in my 40s, and having all of this time to, 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 to work with and be and all of the things around dyslexia. B, D, G, and Q mm. are such hard letters because um, if you change their orientation, they have a different meaning. Like if I took this chair mm-hmm. and I turned it upside down, mm-hmm. it would still be a chair. But if I took a P and turned it upside down, it's now a B. Yes. Right. Um, or flipped it, it would then be a, a D. A, yeah, a exactly. D. Or a Q. Oof. Um, so that, uh, I mean, I look back at handwriting notes and I've written ange instead of and mm-hmm. so many times. Um, I mean, there's tons of other things with dyslexia, but that's one that just stays. So I was really obsessed with the stop sign um, because... I was living in Boulder, Colorado, Mm -hmm. and I was driving through an old shopping center that was, you know, the the path of it had been torn down, and and there was this sun-bleached stop sign, and it was blue. Really? And I watched a stream of cars stop and go through, Mm -hmm. stop and go through, and I was like, it's blue! And we still know what it means. Mm -hmm. Like, the letters stop had been worn off, and we still know what it means. Uh, It could be hanging to its side, and we would still know what it means. Um, So I was very interested in, like, there was a symbol, there was a shape that held this meaning that could not be changed by color, orientation, lettering, Right in, in different countries, obviously, there's different language on it, uh, sometimes different colors that go on it, but the meaning remains, the meaning endures. Um, and oh gosh, did I wish that the same held true with the alphabet. Mm-hmm. That, um, that these 
symbols of sounds were not so easily um, <laughs> easily changed. Um, so, and then I really, really struggled with writing the show because it is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember opening night just feeling, oh, like, oh my gosh, what have I done? How egotistical <laughs> am I that I have made a show about me? And now all these people are going to come see me. Like, oh, I felt so stupid. And, um, and, uh. It, it's soul it kept selling out Aww. and the uh, final night um, we added an extra performance uh, because it was sold out uh, and we sold out the second performance and all along the way there were people coming I remember one one woman in particular brought her brought her teenage daughter and so there was the talk back and mm -hmm. the people were coming up afterwards and she was saying see see She's dyslexic, and look what she can do. It's okay. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, there's, it's not, it's not egotistical. I mean, not solely egotistical. Like, there's a good to it. Um, uh, I, I would ask then, uh, first I would comment, uh, you, you talking about that blue stop sign was probably the most poetic thing anyone's oh. ever said on this show. Um, but also, um, I would ask, do you feel, do you feel that... Certainly, I think one-man shows in general get sort of a, a reputation around them, but do you feel that there's... Do you feel that autobiographical plays tend to be looked at a certain... Under a certain narcissistic lights? I don't know, but I certainly felt that about myself. Okay. I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm so egotistical. This is <laughs> awful. Um, and, it, and, and, and if I... And I... And I prevented myself from putting certain things in the play mm -hmm. because I thought, oh, this is just more about me. Of course. Um, and at, the, at several talkbacks, the response was, oh, I wish, I wish there was even more personal things in here. There's all this great science mm -hmm. and all these studies, and I would long for even more about your personal grappling with this. Oh, so maybe that story that I cut, because I was like, oh, I can go in. So I think every once in a while about bringing it back out putting more of course yeah and isn't there always a, a tendency in us to revise something oh yeah sure make it right this time yeah yeah um so that you know um speaking of dyslexia you are mm -hmm. um you are bilingual you hold mm -hmm. dual citizenship uh greece and america um mm -hmm. which means of course uh greece uh, greek and english do you speak any other languages or just the two not that it isn't impressive sure. to speak two languages. No, the, the I mean the other languages I speak are are very small in comparison. Mm. Mm. I have a small working knowledge of German because mm. I studied it, and then I've had to speak a couple of different languages in plays. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a I have a I know a couple of dirty jokes in Portuguese. Wonderful. <laughs> um, let's save that for the end of this. Oh no. Um, but also, so, but primarily Greek and English then. Yeah. Um, which means that as a dyslexic person, you were tasked with learning, reading, writing, yeah. not just once, but twice. Yeah. Well, so the way that I kind of talk about it is, you know, I didn't feel comfortable talking about it until I was probably in my 30s. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I remember, I was thinking about this this morning as I was trying to figure out how I talked to you about it. I remember being in school and having a really hard time reading, having a really hard time speaking what I was seeing on the page. Um, I also had, you know, pneumonia a number of times that turned into asthma in oh, the first grade, right. so I missed almost the number of days that you'd have to repeat a grade. Oof. And honestly, those two things together, and I was looking back um, uh, maybe last year. Do you want to put your coffee? Are you looking for it? You can put it. Oh, no, I don't okay. mind holding it. Um, <laughs> We're talking about coffee. Um, Appropriate. Um, and I... I uh, I, I found a, an old report card from like the second, first or second grade, and the teacher's note was like, Elenitsa needs to spend more time, you know, reading and going over her blah, blah, blah. And it just like reinforced for me the idea from when I was little, you know, those initial hurts that of I'm like, course. oh, I'm just dumb. Oh, I just don't work hard enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, you're right, I'm insert all these negative Mm -hmm. things so I don't remember actually ever being diagnosed with dyslexia Mm -hmm. I know I I was I remember going to an office Mm -hmm. and and being quizzed on all of these things and trying to spell and um but I don't remember that I actually ever was you know received a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I think maybe memory is such a poor thing I think maybe my parents were trying to save me from some sort of label but I think what it did was just make me, you know, think like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm not working hard enough. And I'm just dumb. Yeah. Um, so the way I talk about it is, right, um, dyslexic and bilingual with two languages that have very similar alphabets, mm-hmm. but not the same. Mm-hmm. And the sounds are very different that go with that. Um, and so I would not only reverse letters and words and reverse and flip and mm. all of the things. In English, I'd do it in Greek too and I'd interchange the two. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the first or second grade, I would be writing like the Greek letter me mm-hmm. um, backwards inside of an English word. Really? Right. And it's a lowercase me, so it looks nothing like an American, you know, letter. Right. English letter. Uh and so for a brief while, I was, um, I was put in a special education class because my teachers couldn't figure out what on earth I was doing. And my father, I think, like stormed the school, <laughs> right? This proud Greek man, being like, these are Greek letters, you know. The ancestors of hers who, were, who made these letters were minting the first coins while your ancestors were living in caves, you know, like his whole... <laughs> so, um, so, uh, uh, yeah, 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 did I answer your question? <laughs> I, you know, I don't remember what it was. Sorry, I took um, a long time there. But it's great. This is like we're in the show. Um, <laughs> no. Um, but, all right, so let's, let's jump ahead then. So you, um, you went on to study... Were you originally interested in studying physical therapy? Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were you were very interested in what the body can do. Um, yeah, cause I yeah yeah um, I didn't feel comfortable reading, writing, speaking, lang- listening in either language mm-hmm. until it was the 
until I discovered the physicality of the body and what theater and dance could do for communication mm -hmm. that I felt comfortable. It's like, oh, I had the scaffolding. Is <laughs> what you can see is that I'm constantly talking with my hands and arms and me. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I found the, the, the sort of comfort, uh, the scaffolding of physicality that I could then like spackle words to and then feel comfortable. <laughs> so um, and my mom, she didn't speak until she was five years old um, so there's you know stuff in the family right mm -hmm. um, she said she had to she had to learn how to read first she had to spell the words out in her mind before she could speak them so um, yeah I was interested in physical therapy I was interested in the body and how it works and how it breaks and how it heals and so oh yeah um, so you went on to study that, and mm -hmm. you were uh, you were trained in mime as well. Um, what was that like, being a mime? <clears throat> awesome. Um, the, the little bridge here is that I um, I went to a couple of oh, internships, one at a hospital and one at a private practice uh, for physical therapy, mm -hmm. and neither of them really fulfilled what I was longing for in this physical work. Mm -hmm. And I took an acting class. And the culmination of that, you know, it was one of my arts credits. Of course. Um, and the culmination of that acting class was going to the, the university auditions. Mm -hmm. um, so I went, and my undergraduate mentor, Janine, saw me in that um, and tapped me. And she saw me using my hands and my body to talk. Mm -hmm. um, and she tapped me to be in the... Um, this residency with Marcel Marceau. I, yeah, I was going to say, I believe you, you studied with Marcel. Uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, an incredible honor, uh, uh, an incredible experience. We had to first, before we worked with him, you know, do a lot of study. Of course. Um, of his work and then also of Etienne de Creux. Mm -hmm. um, and that, as we started doing this work, all of that longing I had to be in the body, explore the body. How does it? How does it? Um, how do you break down certain area? Or what is the physiology? How do you? Um, we did all of that, and the the very segmented work of the body. Okay, now we're going to work in isolation of just the shoulders. How can you rotate them? How can you incline them? How can you do this? Felt really um, incredible and amazing. So that's what I had been searching for of physical therapy. I found in in physical theater, and that was a way to communicate without language. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, but speaking of your education, you have uh, in your office two <laughs> uh, university pennants <laughs> on your wall. One yeah. for the 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 Ohio State University. It doesn't, doesn't say the on there. I mean, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm adding the these. Oh, tiny, tiny, right there. There right is. There. Let the record show. There is a the on that. On that pennant, uh, and then a much bigger one for uh, Naropa University, which I believe is a uh, uh, a school with a, a very um, with a, a Buddhist uh, influence in it. Um, it's a Buddhist university, yeah. Where is Naropa? I'm I'm not familiar with it. It's in Boulder, Colorado. Fascinating. Yeah. So this would have been right around the time with the blue stop sign. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It okay. was. Um, you know, I was working on a piece. For, for my graduate work at Naropa okay. when when the whole stop sign obsession happened. All right. Um, yeah, Naropa's a... Um, I don't think it's the only one anymore. But for a time, it was the only accredited Buddhist university in the United States. 
And so what drew you to, uh, to do graduate work at Naropa? Um, I, as an undergrad at OSU, I remembered asking the graduate students how they decided to come to OSU. Mm-hmm. Was it the Theater Research Institute, this like incredible reference center? Was it, you know, Janine, who was a student of Marcel Marceau? Was it Bruce, who had studied with and then taught with Meisner? Was it, you know, went through all this stuff? Like, what brought you here? Because it's Ohio. Mm-hmm. And being, because we, we both are people from Ohio. We're so. both from Upper Arlington, Ohio, in fact. Yeah, um, um, there's, the, there's a little bit of the mm, hometown, mm-hmm. Ohio. Like, why would you go to Ohio? I, this is especially true for me, since so, truly so many of my family members are from Granville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, one of them was the mayor here, but that's a story for another, uh, time. <laughs> but it's like, oh, it's what I know. And there's a hu- huge world out there. So mm-hmm. what I know is like, Rrr. so I had, <laughs> I had had that same, like, oh, it's Ohio. Why would you come to Ohio? Obviously now making my life and work in Ohio, I don't hold that same feeling anymore, but in my twenties, I certainly did. And, um, and they would say like, well, and maybe it was this particular group. Who knows? Um, the, the, the sort of universal answer I got from them was, well, I didn't know what to do next, and OSU was going to pay me. And I thought, oh, I mean, graduate school is intense, and it's this outlay of time. And, and, whoa, I don't want to go to graduate school until I know exactly what I want to study and I find a program that caters to exactly that. And then I did all of this research mm-hmm. and I was looking at all of these graduate programs and looking at all their professors and looking for their professors of movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, what did they teach and where do they study and going off on the, who did they study with? Let me check that person. And where did they work? Let me check that institution. Um, but if it said, you know, movement and it was, just, and I'm not trying to discredit these because these are very amazing and important, but if it was just Alexander Technique, um, choreography, yoga, stage combat, I mean, those are things that yes. important, but I was looking for something deeper, something um, stronger and wider. So I'd look at those. I'm like, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And I found, I saw Naropa because they had a Lecoq program. Mm-hmm. Um, that was based in um, in the UK. What is Lecoq for our listeners? Um, it's a it's a um, uh, f- uh, another kind of physical um, training. Um, uh, Jacques Lecoq. Um, uh, uh, ooh, I have a hard time uh, <laughs> whittling this down to a sentence. But I guess we could think um, um, if 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 Marcel Marceau's teacher was. Etienne de Croo, mm-hmm. Etienne de Croo's other major student was Jacques Lecoq. Okay. Because I had had all this training with Marcel Marceau, the Lecoq way of, uh, the Lecoq school of thought. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. That's really great. But also it wasn't accredited. I'm like, eh. So I sort of put that off to the side. And then I had been an apprentice at Actors Theatre of Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, And the culmination of that was to do a showcase in New York. So I did that showcase in New York. 
Um, and of course, all the physicalness um, of what I brought to, to my, my monologues and scenes in that showcase, um, I did have some people afterwards talk to me about like kind of physical work. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, well, have you checked out Naropa? And I said, oh, yeah, but they've got this Lecoque program and blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, no, no. They just started a brand new program. And it was the people from the experimental theater wing at NYU sort of picked up and moved into the mountains. Fascinating. Um, and then that was, that was the program. It was the only graduate program I applied to. Well, um, subsequently, after graduate school, you are now a professor at Denison, the university which I attend. Yes. Um, in fact, you've been my professor um, personally before, but um, how, do, how, do you, um, how do you feel your experiences as someone who is bilingual, mm-hmm. who holds dual, dual citizenship, mm-hmm. who is dyslexic? How do you feel that that all influences you as, a, as an educator? Well, sure. Um, okay, so the thing I said before about not feeling comfortable reading, writing, speaking, listening mm-hmm. in either language until I found the physicality of the body. Mm-hmm. That's why I became the artist I became. Mm-hmm. And because I know there are other people like me and other people very unlike me, but who also learn differently, that's the reason I became an educator. I remember the frustrations of trying to learn in just one specific manner that wasn't accessible to me uh, and the, the, the frustrations and the heartbreak that came with that. And I remember the elation when teachers did get it mm-hmm. and made work more accessible. Um, so I try to offer a lot of different ways into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask that you know we we you know, we work kinesthetically mm-hmm. with the body uh, we talk about it we write uh, you're learn you're reading about it I, I have a like a really I don't know I'm doing a hand gesture now kind of <laughs> attendance policy um, because I want people to, to to be there and in and doing doing the work and I say you know if participation wise if you don't feel comfortable talking in class you know send me a message you know uh, uh, send me an email or put it on note bowl or whatever the things are but just interact talk about your thoughts in some way whether it's verbal or written or um, and uh, I think too I have a special set of skills right as um, embodied teacher uh, teaching kinesthetic body stuff, um, being a dyslexic and aware, uh, maybe sometimes hyper aware of neurodiversity mm-hmm. and accessibility into work. Um, and then all of my Buddhist training background about creating an atmosphere of kindness and rigor, um, an environment that I was having a conversation with a colleague recently about like it's uh, safe is a really mm-hmm. just um, complex word. Mm-hmm. So to say a safe classroom, I, I don't I don't know that I can just by virtue of being in Ohio or by virtue of me being who I am maybe makes the classroom feel unsafe for someone. But what I can say is is that we're gonna work to have a classroom where we will all 
experience challenges, but that I and hopefully everyone in the class are gonna support each other as we experience those challenges. Um, and um, uh, I think especially, especially, oh gosh, for your generation, I think when so much of communication interfacing with people is not done in person, mm -hmm. not done in an embodied way. I think a classroom that I try to create, which is about being present in your own body, standing in front of other people while speaking is a vital uh, experience. So that's what I try to provide. I really, I like that. Um, and speaking of safety, you are a, um, you are a director as well, um, both with your company and here at the school. You, yeah. uh, and in fact, you do, you direct a, a fair amount of plays that are experimental, that dare to take risks. One of them that I actually had the pleasure of being directed by you in, um, and which you have a framed poster for <laughs> in your office, uh, was the, uh, the rather infamous information for foreigners, so uh, by Griselda Gambaro. And actually, um, we did that last year around this time. I love that play. And it made quite a splash in Columbus's underground art scene. If I'm remembering, <laughs> I might be giving us too much credit, but... Um, but you do work with a lot of unconventional material. Yeah. Um, do you feel a sort of connection to things that are sort of off the beaten path artistically? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I remember having a conversation with Matt, our, our founder and executive director, uh, when he had, we, we were discussing plays. Mm -hmm. and, um, I remember just saying just so exasperated you know it's like ugh, but they're all just plays <laughs> you know? like ugh, you know they all have a fourth wall they all blah 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 um i mean there's some of them are really fantastic but uh but just feeling like ugh, it's this it's this i am drawn to works that that evoke a visceral reaction, mm -hmm. right? And surprise, right? Because that's, mm -hmm. that's where I live, right? That's, that's, that's where I feel most comfortable. Um, so, yeah, I look, I look for plays that, yeah, off the beaten path, hit us in a different way. The play I'm um, going to start working on next month, Cry It Out, mm -hmm. by Molly Smith Metzler, uh, it is a fairly realistic lowercase r realistic play um and i was surprised that it hit me and and had such an effect on me being a rather realistic play but i i think it's because it's talking about a subject in a way that we don't usually hear hear about spoken in that way it's about motherhood mm -hmm. it's about um it's it's about the, the the challenges of having a young a young child and the socioeconomic challenges that hit everyone differently um and going back to work with a child and and so much of the work in the world that talks about motherhood is very stereotypical. And this just 
hit me in a, in, in a, in a very visceral way. And so um, I'm working with a, with a, a delightful ensemble um, of, 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 of uh, you know, designers and, and actors, and I'm really interested in exploring the realistic aspects of it and sort of the non-realistic aspects of it. Oh. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think what else. Um, Should I plug it? Am I supposed to plug it? Have to I plug mean, for it. You, you have. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to, please. Um, let's see. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's three things that are different about this show. Okay. Um, so, uh, one is that all the performances are at 7 p.m. Okay. Rather than 8 p.m., um, and that's because we are providing childcare on site. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a about eighty ninety minute show. Mm-hmm. So if we start at seven p.m., eh, you know it's like yeah. we're kind of out around bedtime. Yeah. Um, so all shows are at seven p.m. except the matinee, which is at two. Um, uh, childcare is on site, and um, it's at a new location for us. We're we're working at the. Wellington School at the Blanchard Performing Arts Center. And you've, you've taught there uh, in the past, haven't you? I did, yeah. I have, right? I'm like Liam Neeson with the, 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 the what's the abducted movie? The Taken? Taken! You right? actually, I almost, I almost <laughs> called you out on that earlier because you said I have a very special set of skills. I have a very special set of skills! I didn't know if that was intentional or yeah, not. Yeah, that's how I've been trying to relate to it. It's like, Excellent. Yeah. So I went, um, uh, I w- they had had a really rough go. Their 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 former uh, theater director had been imprisoned, um, and so I was hired to heal the program. Mm-hmm. Right, I have a special set of skills, right? and I went to heal the program. Um, and now a very dear friend of mine is the is the is the director of that program, and he has just taken it leaps and bounds, just done amazing things with it, and so you know, uh, available light is the um, is the resident theater company of Denison. Mm-hmm. And then we're also working with uh, with Wellington, um, so we've gone in and done some workshops with them, and and uh, a lot of those students have worked backstage on productions. But the, the sort of the next step of that is that we're producing a play in their space. So it is uh, March twenty sixth through April eleventh um, at the Blanchard Performing Arts Center, the Wellington School. You can go to www.avltheater.com for more information. I, uh, I'll be sure to put a link up then. <laughs> um, I guess I would ask then, what compels you to teach? Oh, um, you know, it's that thing about accessibility and everyone learns differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm really... Mm, a couple of things. So my, my intro acting class, I adore... So it's mm. theater two thirty, of course, um, and I really love helping people find a way to be fully present in their body while speaking in front of other people. And there's lots of different ways we talk about, like you know, when we go into autopilot, when mm-hmm. we're bored or anxious, or you know, it's like the thing that you can drive home, and you can arrive, you know, in the street outside your 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 place Mm -hmm. and not remember taking the exit, not remember stopping at the stop sign, Mm -hmm. not remember making the left turns, but clearly you made them and you didn't injure anyone. Like you made it home, but, um, but you were on autopilot and it's very hard to be present all the time. Yeah. 
when you're on stage, you really have to be present. But also being present in your life is really important. So how to bring you into your body. And then part of the class is, is starting to identify when we watch people absent their body. You know, yeah. and you see the people who rock back and forth or you think back to, to your like eighth grade history presentation and you're moving your thumbs and you're rocking back and forth and you say, um, about a million mm-hmm. times. Right. And that all has to do, I said, um, that all has to do with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. So how to boom, bring someone into their body and find, uh, have different structures and containers and things to make you feel comfortable being in your body in this moment. Um, um. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things that makes me really passionate about teaching intro acting. And then my work that has to do with uh, maybe like different levels of acting or postmodernist, postmodern approaches to acting class you took. Or, I did. Or, or devised work um, has to do with, you know, I don't know, try not to be too much on my little soapbox. Oh, no, it's all right. Uh, but the realistic... Mm. We could have like a couple hour conversation. I'm about sure this. we could. Um, the realistic styles of theater and acting is just one part of a movement. I use movement loosely. Of course. Um, it is not the only way to create theater mm-hmm. or the way to act and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it it's just really important to know that it's not the only way uh, so I'm really interested in, in exposing students and artists different ways of creating and sometimes that'll end up being I mean years ago we had a student Davis Yes, I think I do. Who took my postmodernist approaches to acting course. And he is absolutely all about realistic work. Mm-hmm. And good for him. And mm-hmm. he's good at it. And it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Good. Right. Um, and the work in that class, I think, really brought something to his realistic work. That he, that uh, I remember him doing a monologue where... Um, <clears throat> He ended up so the, so the postmodernist work is about not relying on character or narrative mm-hmm. to create work. Um, so he ended up doing a, a monologue, but his physical actions throughout the entire monologue were tracing the line of the zipper on his shirt, on his on his like zip mm-hmm. up, you know, and then like where the folds of the fabric were, and it was the most fascinating thing, and it had nothing to do with character. Um, and just that you have other other ways to bring work in. Interesting. Um, we are we're running shorter on time. Oh, but yeah, there's... I'm talking like crazy. Oh, it's there. all right. I do have one more question. I feel like I should have asked earlier. I apologize. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, going back to your experiences as uh, as someone who is both Greek and American. Yeah. Uh, what was it like being? Uh, we're from the same town in <laughs> Ohio. Um, what was it like being the child of? An immigrant in Upper Arlington, Ohio. Um, hmm. You know, I think my dad chose Upper Arlington because <laughs> he was looking. He's like, "Where's the Where's the best place? Where's?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, 
Where's the place 10 years ago I wouldn't have allowed to be? I wouldn't have been allowed to live. Yes. Okay, I'm going to go live there. Yes. Uh, he was making a statement, and of he course. just wanted what was best for his family. And um, Burlington is a complicated place. It is. Uh, it's very white. Yes, it is. Um, um, there are very good things about it. Uh, hmm. It was a challenge. <laughs> I, you know, and, and there's a whole thing to be discussed in there about identity, um, ethnicity. Uh, I have a name which is very clearly not American. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah. I mean, one of the sort of saving bits, although not, you know, fully, was my dad is a very proud Greek. So he was born and raised in Greece, um, and he came to the United States when he was 19 on a Fulbright Scholar to University of Arkansas. So he had a Greek, Greek accent with a Southern drawl. Uh, and he ended up coming to Ohio because he was a, a mechanical and, and um, electrical engineer to work for AT&T. And he was a really large part of the Greek church. Mm-hmm. Uh, he founded the Greek festival. Really? Mm-hmm. Although, uh, so he had been president of the Greek church, and then he founded the Greek festival. He had originally set it out to be in March um, for Greek Independence Day, which was a little too cold then. Oh, and no. you know, other 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 people had the great idea of putting it in the summertime. And you know, it's a thing that has been evolved that has yes. evolved over time with lots of input from lots of different yes. people. But, um, and he, you know, he really cared a lot about Greece and the Greek people, and he was on this letter writing campaign to get fellow Greeks to the University of Arkansas and then like to AT&T and there's so many people from his generation that talked about coming to Columbus because of my dad. So there is a, a fairly large uh, Greek community and and uh, we were a really big part of that when I was when I was young. So um, actually our next door neighbors were Greek and um, uh, people down the street were Greek, so uh, Greek Easter, which is, you know, we go by the old calendar mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Uh, there would be multiple houses with, uh, you know, a lamb roasting on a spit, mm-hmm. you know, just within walking distance. Uh, so, so it was a way inside of the very um, whiteness of Upper Arlington, there was that safe haven of culture and community to have um you know and 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 after you know and 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 then people to speak a language with of course yeah not a ton but enough that that while i felt like i was the odd person out and even more so with dyslexia um there were places where i felt like oh this kind of feels this kind of feels okay and then it's still inside of it. Like I don't have, I didn't have a mastery of the language, and, and when I was young, and 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 um, 
you know, my teachers were telling my parents they should stop teaching me Greek because it was interfering with my, with my ability to speak and write in English. Eh. Do you feel that that's something that still happens today, that children who are brought up in oh, multilingual... Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, it's all right. I think we both knew where the question was going. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, talked to, I've certainly talked to parents, like, even in the grocery store, when they say, yeah, they tell me to stop teaching my daughter Spanish, but, like, she's five. This is the age, right, where, where, where you're, like, to introduce, to have multiple languages at this age when the brain can really absorb it. And it's really frustrating. And maybe, you know, I, I, I'm not an uh, elementary educator. No. Uh, uh, maybe there is something in there about, you know, it would stunt a certain amount of growth for a certain time, but then really take off. Like, I, 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 I don't know. But, yeah, it's absolutely something that still happens. Do you, um, I, I, you know, you read things about how in other countries there are multiple languages taught at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like in the United States, most people are unilingual, um, mm-hmm. which might be a word I just made up. We'll have to Google that. Um, do you feel Do you feel it would be beneficial for us to start including um, other languages being taught at a young age? I mean, we obviously see how important it is because you have to take a language in high school, right? You right. have to take a language in college. I even started in middle school. That's yeah. how much they're cracking down on yeah. it now. I mean, English wasn't even my dad's second language. It was his third um, yeah, I think it's, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just kind of a fun question then for us to end on. What's your favorite word <laughs> or your least favorite word? Are you, are you one of those that doesn't like the word moist? Eh, no, that's fine. All right. I mean, also in context, like there's a lot of words that you can say in the distasteful, creepy way. And I'm like, oh, I never knew that that was an awful word until you said it like that. Uh, I don't know. I like words with a lot of plosives. You were just going over all the words we can't say, you know, on a radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, So those are always fun. Yeah, they are fun. It's a shame. (laughs) Um, On that topic, um, may I hear one of those Portuguese jokes? Oh, no. I'd have to consult something. It's not fresh in my brain. Um, Um. yeah. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, that's a, such a letdown. It, You're like, oh, here's a it's high a point. It's a downer ending on. of the show. But oh I will. Say, I will say. Scrap um, the whole thing now. Obviously, and I will say. I think we went over past ten. I appreciate it. This interview has been very meaningful um, as a way to start the season, and actually, as someone who um, who who had sort of a neurodiverse elementary school experience as well, with massive ADHD brain, mm-hmm. and also being in intervention and being labeled as sort of Asperger's adjacent, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you and I have had a conversation about that before. Um, It's a spectrum. It's a continuum. It really is. And also, like, you know, the guidelines for diagnosis have changed so much since I was coming up in the the mid-aughts when it was so trendy for everyone to have ADHD and Asperger's. And be medicated. Exactly. And I was... um, my original medication is wonderful if it's appropriate. It is. My original one was a patch. Um, it was very uncomfortable and also made me not eat. But that's not oh. important. Um, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate um, your time. We've spent almost an hour actually talking. Um, oh, that's so okay. It's I, been great talking with you. Is. I appreciate you lending me your your Monday morning. Um, I'll post a link to Cry It Out. Oh, thanks. Um, opening when in March? 
March 26th. March 26th. Um, Eleni, thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, I bet you're not the only person, right? Mm -hmm. We're not the only people no. that have had these experiences. And I just, like, I'm motioning to a door that no one can see. Um, my door is open a whole lot. And I, I welcome anyone that wants to come and, and chat. I usually have chocolate and apples and coffee and tea and whatnot. Um, but it really is great to be able to chat with other people, especially like as you're talking about, like, ah, oh, and it, it's hard to, to own these things because yes, they hurt is. so much. Yes, it is. And it takes time. I, like, I was in my 30s before I could really proudly say, yeah, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 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 if anyone else is struggling in there, there's a lot of wonderful things on campus that are helpful, but, um, I think we can attest to the greatness of being able to chat with other people. It is. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eleni. Um, this has been Adam Venrick for The Doobie, and this has been episode one of the new season of The Coffee Hour, signing off. <laughs>